Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
This morning we are in Revelation chapter 12. Up until chapter 12 here in the book of Revelation, after you get through the letters to the churches, John seems to be speaking in a fairly sequential, progressive, narrative kind of style. It's clear that he means for us to understand it in this progressive, sequential style because you have things like the seven seals and then before you get to the seventh of the seals, you get two trumpets. The last three of the trumpets, as we talked about last week, constitute the last of the three woes. And so that's clearly sequential. There's no way to read that and make any sense out of it if it is not actually sequential. But then starting in chapter 12, John's style of progressive sequential information changes And he begins introducing us to symbols that represent situations. And there are descriptions of two warring factions, heavenly factions. For instance, in chapters 12 and 13, we're going to meet the following characters. We're going to see a woman clothed with the sun, who I'm going to argue this morning is Israel. It represents Israel. It can't represent anything else, but we'll get into that. And then we're going to meet a red dragon with, no surprise, seven heads and ten horns. And we're told in the text that he is that serpent, Satan himself. He's even called the devil and Satan. And then we're going to meet a male child representing Christ, There is no way that he can represent anything other than Christ. And once again, we're going to come across the archangel Michael, who's casting Satan out of heaven. And then we're going to meet the offspring of the woman who is persecuted by the dragon. That is Israel, who have been told to flee to the wilderness. And then we're going to meet a beast out of the sea, who is described as a future world dictator. He is Daniel's little horn. He is the beast. And then finally, there is a beast out of the earth who is referred to as a false prophet. We won't get to him today. He's in chapter 13. And then chronological progress in the book of Revelation picks up again in chapter 16 and takes us to the end of the book. I say all that to say, for the next couple of weeks, as we look at chapter 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, this is the part of the book of Revelation that people think of when they say Revelation is so symbolic. There is no question that we are about to see a lot of symbols. The problem, of course, with the symbols is that people feel free to interpret those symbols any way they want to, depending on which particular theological, eschatological outlook they have. And so they will mold and shape these symbols, kind of like a wax nose to make it fit their face. They'll mold these symbols in order to get them to comport to whatever outcome they have determined going in. What I'm going to try to do is demonstrate to you that every one of these symbols 
has a precursor in the Bible. We're just going to let the Bible interpret the Bible, a sort of novel concept. It's not confusing. It's not difficult. The reason that John can refer to these symbols and then not explain them, because previously we've seen John see particular things, and then an angel says, now what this is, is. And so we get interpretation, heavenly interpretation, right in the book of Revelation. But we don't get a whole lot of interpretation of some of these symbols. And I am convinced the reason that we don't get that interpretation is because it's obvious. At least John seems to think it's obvious. The angels seem to think it's obvious. To any first century thoroughgoing Jew who knew his scripture, these symbols are obvious. It's just that we, as 21st century Gentiles, all these years later, and having 2,000 years of church development and theological development, we think that these symbols are a jump ball. But they're just not. They're biblically defined for us, and so we will take the time to go back and look at the scripture and define these symbols according to what the Bible has already told us. When you do that, by the way, you will see yet again what I have been drilling into your head over and over since we began the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. It has Israel at its center. And so no surprise that these symbols are all Israel-centric, and you can really only understand them if you know your Old Testament and you know the history of Israel. So by the time we get through with these symbols, you're going to hopefully be convinced that the best way to understand them, the best way to interpret them is by letting the Bible interpret them. And then you'll find that they actually fit very nicely in the history of God's dealings with Israel and ultimately then with his church. But Israel first. Always Israel first. And that is Pauline theology, that is New Testament theology to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, writes Paul. The promises, the covenants, the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the covenants, it all belongs to Israel. And what we are told repeatedly is that the blessings that flow to the Gentiles flow through Israel and then out to the nations. And you're going to see that yet again. These symbols demand that you understand that as God's economy. Unfortunately, over the last 2,000 years, there is a genuine anti-Semitism that has grown up in the church where the Gentile church has tried to replace Israel and even call themselves the newer, better spiritual Israel, something that the Bible never says. Older New Testament, that statement is never made and so in order to best understand what we're about to read, we have to keep in mind the flow of the whole Bible and that God has already told us that it is all Israel-centric. He is concerned with his people, Israel. And even though the church exists right now, we have not done away with God's promises and covenants, unconditional covenants that he has made with Israel. Give us an example, Jim. Okay, I will. <laughs> Who was the Abrahamic covenant made with? Abraham. Israel. The descendants, the seed of Abraham. Who was the law of Moses made with? Israel. 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 The answer is always Israel. You don't have to think at all. 
you just say Israel when I ask these questions. The new covenant, here's a tough one. The church thinks the new covenant is theirs and exclusively theirs. In Jeremiah 31, the new covenant is cited as being specifically with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Go back and read it. The first telling of the new covenant, of course, is told to the people who are under the old covenant. Because in order to make it qualitatively new, it has to be with the people who are under the old. The longest verbatim quote that is taken from the Old Testament and repeated in the New Testament is the New Covenant repeated in Hebrews 8. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, stop me when this is too obvious, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews quotes the New Covenant identically the way that Jeremiah does and says that it is made to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. We, quite fortunately, we Gentiles are grafted into that covenant. We get salvation by grace through faith, but that in no way negates the fact that every single covenant you find in the Bible is made with Israel. And just because you are brought into relationship with God through one of those covenants does not push Israel out, which is why Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 has to make the argument that the wild branches that are grafted in against their own nature, that be us, don't boast against the natural branches because those natural branches are still grafted into their own tree. And you would think after everything that the Bible says about ego and about pride, okay, I know I said enough about that last week, but... After everything the Bible says about boasting and pride and arrogance, combined with what Paul has said about, don't you Gentiles, you wild branches, don't you brag, don't you boast against the natural branches. It's their tree, it's their root, it's their covenants, it's their promises, it's their scripture, they have the prophets. Don't boast against them, and yet so oftentimes when people start interpreting these symbols in the book of Revelation, they start interpreting them in ways that negate Israel. So with all that as introduction, we're going to start looking at chapter 12, and we're going to interpret it in a very Israelitish way. If that's not okay with you, you've still got time probably to beat the Baptist to Shoney's takeoff now. And <laughs> does Shoney's even exist anymore? No. That just demonstrates how old I am. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 1. Here again, we're going to see the word megas. We're familiar with the Greek word megas. It's translated great here. The uh, thalipsis megas is the great tribulation. It doesn't mean great like, hey, great. You know, like, wow, that's really good. That's great. Wow, that tribulation. <laughs> what it means is a large, a significant, and impossible to ignore thing. John says here that there was a great sign. There was a great demonstration. In other words, this particular symbol was shown to him in such a way that it was impossible to ignore. It was that significant. And a great sign <coughs> appeared in heaven... A woman clothed with the sun 
and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. As we continue through this chapter, we're going to find that the child she gives birth to is Jesus Christ. But let's just concentrate on the woman for just a moment, because if you talk to any Catholic, they will tell you that that woman is Mary, because Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. Therefore, she, being the queen of heaven, is represented as being clothed with the sun and the moon is under her feet. I hope you know this. The history of saints and paintings and drawings of saints through history that have halos, that halo is the sun. It is simply the sun behind their head. And so in keeping with that symbology, if she has the sun behind her head and she's standing on the moon, she is actually the dominant queen of heaven who gives birth to Christ and she has 12 stars and they just interpret that as demonstrating her superiority over the whole rest of the universe. Okay, that interpretation is, what's that word? Wrong. Wrong. That's exactly the word I'm looking for. In a moment, I will prove to you that it's wrong. Among many Protestants, they will tell you that the woman with the sun and the moon and the stars on her head is the church. Now, of course, then they have to explain how it is that the church gave birth to Christ. I listened to a man just this week who interpreted it this way. He said, well, we, the saints of God who are in the church, we go out and preach the gospel to other people, and then the Holy Spirit enters those people, takes up residence in them, so the church is actively birthing Christ in them, and in that way, the church gives birth to Christ. That interpretation is, what's that word? Um, wrong. That, that would be wrong. The quickest way to demonstrate that it is Israel, this woman represents Israel. Look over at verse 6 of this very same chapter, a little more description of this woman. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Who else is ever described that way in the Bible? Just last week, we had both Tom and Micah reading Jesus, saying, you who are in Judea, when you see the abomination that makes desolation, flee into the wilderness. John describes her exactly the same way. She's going to flee into the wilderness. And repeatedly, we have seen this reference to 42 months, 1,260 days, a time, time, and half a times. That's that same period of the wrath of God being poured out on the planet. And God has already prepared, all the way back to Daniel, has already prepared a hiding place for the remnant of Israel. They're going to flee to Ammon and to Moab and to Edom. Look at verse 14. And the two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. 
Same thing, time times half a time, 1,260 days. And the woman who is told to flee, according to Jesus, is those who are in Judea when they see the abomination of desolation. Also, there is a reference here to two wings of a great eagle that carry this woman. That's not unique. That's not anything new. That's actually something that the Bible already tells us in God's dealings with Israel, that he bears them up on wings of eagles. Exodus 19.4 says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, who is that, by the way? Israel. The answer is always Israel. How can you not know the answer? So say to the house of Jacob, tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on the wings of eagles and I brought you to myself. If you were to read the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, especially verses 11 and 12, you're going to see the same thing. God makes reference to the fact that he, like an eagle taking care of its chicks, would not only push them out of the nest, but then also catch them in the air and bear them on his wings. Now, if you know your Old Testament and you know that God has already told Israel repeatedly that he's going to bear them up on his wings, not a surprise when you get to verse 14 that God says yet again, I'm going to bear the woman up on eagle's wings in order to deliver her to the place that was prepared for her. When you put all of that together with what has already been described about the woman, time, times, half a time, 42 months, when you get all that correct and you line it all up with what Jesus said, it has to be Israel. But there's an even bigger hint that this is Israel. Turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Keep your finger there in Revelation. This is a bit of Israel's history that you really should know. When you think of Old Testament characters, do you know the name Joseph? Do you know why Joseph is special? Well, he's special because his father said he was special. Jacob, who had his name changed to Israel. Jacob fell in love with Rachel and made a deal with Laban, Rachel's father, that he would work for him for seven years, and in exchange, he would get Rachel as a wife. So he put in his seven years. Boy, that's devotion. He put in his seven years to get Rachel, and then on the wedding night, he went into the tent waiting for Laban to deliver his wife to him. Laban was upset about the fact that Rachel was the younger of his two daughters. He had an older daughter named Leah, so he sent Leah to the tent, and apparently in the dark, Jacob didn't know the difference, woke up in the morning and went, wait a minute, except he said it in Hebrew. <laughs> wait, wait, this isn't who I worked to get, this is Leah. So then he worked for Laban another seven years to finally get Rachel. Ultimately, he ended up having 12 sons, and those 12 sons he had by four different women. By Leah, by Rachel, by Leah's handmaid, and by Rachel's handmaid. 
Now, unfortunately, his beloved Rachel was barren. And so while Leah and Leah's handmaid and Rachel's handmaid were all giving him children, he had 12 sons and a daughter. So while they were busy giving him children, Rachel was incapable of bearing children. God opened her womb, and as a consequence, later in life, Jacob finally got a son through Rachel. That was Joseph. So that's why Joseph was his favorite son, because Joseph came through Rachel, the one he worked 14 years for, the one who he truly loved. And so in order to demonstrate how much he loved Joseph, he gave Joseph a coat of many colors. If you don't remember that, you may remember the Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice musical, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Has anybody heard that? Okay. And his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Exactly right. Got to get that right so that people can rush right out and find it on Spotify or something. But. And then Joseph ended up having a couple of dreams. And in those dreams, he saw his brothers bowing down to him. And his brothers took that so well that they actually sold him off to a bunch of Arameans and then took his coat of many colors, put blood on it, went back to dad and said, oh, what a shame, Joseph's dead. Joseph, meanwhile, is sold to the house of Potiphar in Egypt. He's a good servant to Potiphar, but Mrs. Potiphar's got her eye on Joseph. And when he doesn't reciprocate her feelings, she says that he has um, compromised her, and Joseph ends up in prison. While Joseph is in prison, he meets the cupbearer to the king and the baker to the king, and he ends up telling them interpretations of their dreams, and one of the interpretations for the cupbearer is, you're going to be restored. You're actually going to go back and be cupbearer again. And to the baker, it's, ho oh, ho, you're going to die. Except he said it in Hebrew. Yeah. And so that all actually happened when the cupbearer ends up with Pharaoh again. Pharaoh has a dream, and he can't interpret the dream, and he can't figure out the dream. The dream is that there's seven fat cows that come up out of the Nile. And then behind them come seven starving, skinny cows. And then the starving, skinny cows eat the fat cows and remain skinny. So Pharaoh's really trying to figure out what this dream is all about when the cupbearer says, you know, you've got a guy in your prison who can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph says, well, I'll interpret your dream for you. What's coming is seven years of plenty here in Egypt. We're going to have lots of stuff, bumper crops. But then we're going to have seven years of famine and that seven years of famine is going to be so complete that it eats up everything that we got during the seven years of plenty. Pharaoh says, well, then we need to put a man over this. You seem like the right guy. And Joseph ends up being second only to Pharaoh. Well, eventually, that famine makes it all the way up to Canaan. 
and Joseph's brothers are starving, but they hear there's food in Egypt. Because during the seven years of plenty in Egypt, Joseph has built all these storehouses. And he has stored up all this grain. So there's still food in Egypt during the famine. And so the brothers go to Egypt to get food. The one thing they don't do is they don't bring their youngest brother along with them because it turns out that Rachel has had yet another child with Jacob, a boy named Benjamin. So they end up standing before Joseph begging for food. They don't recognize Joseph because, after all, he's in all his Egyptian headdress and his Egyptian makeup, everything else. They don't realize that's their brother. They've convinced themselves that he's dead somewhere. And they ask for food. He ultimately, long story short, reveals himself to them, and they break out in fear. When Joseph falls on their necks and kisses them and declares his love for them, he asks how his father is doing and whether there isn't yet another child. The whole point of that is that Joseph sets them up in the land of Goshen, gives them the best of the land there in Egypt, very fertile land. And then when you get to the beginning of the book of Exodus, you read a pharaoh rose up who knew not Joseph. The significance of that phrase is a pharaoh rose up who realized that these Israelites living in his land were becoming very numerous. And at some point, if they ever decided to fight against the Egyptians, they were going to be a force to be reckoned with. So they put them into slavery. And for the next 400 years, they served as slaves in Egypt. Now, why did all of that happen? Because when God gave Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, including all of this land belongs to you in perpetuity, from the Nile River all the way out to the Euphrates River, all of that belongs to Israel forever. Abraham pointed out, his name was Abram at the time, pointed out, I don't have an heir. I don't have a child. So how is this going to happen? And how am I going to know that I'm going to receive all this land? In response, God put him to sleep. God passed through the severed animals, forming a covenant with himself that we know is the Abrahamic covenant, and telling Abraham the next 500 years of history of his people, including your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known and they're going to serve there as slaves for 400 years. How did Israel get to Egypt so that they could serve for 400 years? Joseph. So this is why you should know the name Joseph. Now let's look for a moment at these dreams that he has had. We're in Genesis 37. I'm just going to start reading at verse 1. Now Jacob, who is Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had sojourned. That's a reference to Abram. Abram had sojourned as a pilgrim in the land of Canaan, and so did Jacob. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. His father's wives, those are the two handmaids. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. And Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. 
And his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all the brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. And then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, here's the dream. Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. How well is that going to go over in pretty much any household with multiple kids? It's just not going to go over well. He said, I ended up standing erect. You all Bow to me. Now they understood the implication of that dream because they hated him for it. And in fact, they said to him, verse 8, his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So that they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Did that dream come true? Yeah, it actually did, because he did rule over them in Egypt, and they did bow down to him. But he wasn't done dreaming, and he wasn't done telling his dreams. And fortunately, this time, Jacob, his father, is going to interpret the dream for us. So there's no question about what this means. The interpretation is right in the text, and if you come to some other conclusion or some other interpretation, you're, what's that word? Wrong! You're wrong. Okay. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers. And he said, Lo, I have had still another dream. This would be a good time to keep that to yourself. <laughs> Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept these sayings in mind. In Joseph's dream, notice there were not 12 stars, there were 11 stars. Joseph is one of the stars. But he said, you other 11 stars are going to bow down to me, the same way that your sheaves are going to bow down to me. And the sun and the moon are going to bow down to me, which Jacob said, me and your mother? So the interpretation of the sun and the moon and the stars is Jacob and his beloved Rachel and how they are all the sons going to bow down collectively before Joseph. What is that collectively then a reference to? Israel. It's always Israel. Now go back to the book of Revelation. Now that you know all that. A great sign appeared in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Can that be interpreted biblically, knowing what we already know historically? 
Can that be interpreted as anything other than Israel? No. Not if you're being biblical. Now, if you're being fanciful, if you're just making stuff up, then, yeah, you can end up with, well, that's the Virgin Mary. Or you can end up with, well, that's the church giving birth to Christ. But if you're going to be biblically consistent, the symbol of the woman who appeared in heaven, this great sign, is obviously a reference to Israel. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And as I already told you, she's going to give birth to the man-child who's caught up to heaven. Clearly a reference to Christ. Did Israel give birth to Christ? Yes. Yes. That's the answer. What tribe did he come from? Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's going to be called that, and is continually called that. Even in Revelation, he's called that. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the references are always back to Israel. The image is of Israel. The woman is Israel, and it's a historic fact that through Israel, the Christ came. Is that too complicated? See how easy it is to just interpret the book of Revelation consistently with the Bible? Verse 3, and then another sign, another representation appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon. You don't have to interpret that. We're going to be told in a couple of verses that this is the devil and Satan. So you don't even have to do any work to know who the great red dragon is. But the great red dragon has... Seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Does any of that sound familiar, this combination of sevens and tens? Let me remind you of something you should already know. I'm going to read a couple passages out of Daniel, passages that I have read in the past, but this time I'm going to emphasize these numbers because it becomes real obvious if you know the book of Daniel, becomes real obvious what these symbols represent. You don't have to make anything up. For instance, Daniel 7, 7 says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts before it, and it had ten horns. Here in Revelation, the beast has seven heads and ten horns. Doesn't seem complicated. Okay, so what we know from the book of Daniel previously is that there was a succession of kingdoms. Altogether, there are seven kingdoms in the Bible who have ever oppressed Israel. Remember, the answer is always Israel. There are seven kingdoms that have ever oppressed God's people, Israel. Can you name them? Well, I just named one of them for you. So what's the first one? Egypt. Egypt is the first one. Then comes the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrian captivity took the ten northern tribes into captivity, and they have not been returned to the land of Canaan ever since. By the way, if you ever wonder why the book of Jonah is in the Bible, Jonah is told very specifically to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of what? Assyria. Assyria. 
Why is God interested in keeping Assyria going? Because he's going to use them in order to punish his people Israel. So he needs to cause them to repent so that he doesn't destroy them, so that he keeps them going, so that they can be the hammer in his hand that he uses to punish the northern tribes and take them into captivity. So suddenly the book of Jonah makes sense eschatologically as well. After Assyria, you should know who's the next kingdom in the Bible. Babylon. Babylon, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, they conquer Israel. Who comes after Babylon? Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Very good. Who comes after Medo-Persia? Greece. Greece. And their first king? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Alexander dies young. And just like Daniel said, his power does not go to his posterity. Instead, it goes to four of his generals. And so the next kingdom that occupies the Middle East and holds sway over Israel is what? Rome. Rome was in power during the time that Jesus was here on the planet. Jim, that's only six kingdoms. The seventh, according to Daniel, is a ten-toed confederacy, that's on the statue, or ten-horn confederacy, a ten-nation confederacy, and then a little horn rises up in the midst of all that. And then takes three of them by force. The others apparently just give him the power. And he is known through the rest of the Bible as the little horn or the beast, sometimes nicknamed Antichrist. He's going to show up in this chapter. And so the sign of the dragon having seven heads, the seven heads are the seven kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel. That's not complicated. Culminating in ten horns, just like Daniel mentioned his ten horns. By the way, let me read another section of Daniel 7. I'm going to start at verse 25 because there we read, And as for the ten horns, oh good, Daniel's now going to have the interpretation of the ten horns coming directly from an angel, so we don't have to interpret it. The Bible's going to interpret it for us. And if you interpret it any other way as any other thing, you would be, what's that word? Wrong. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations to the times and in the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the previous dominions will serve and obey him. So Daniel is describing a succession of kingdoms there in the Middle East who have ever ruled over Israel when the final ten-toed kingdom is then conquered, taken over by this little horn. That little horn is destroyed by Christ coming back himself, smashing the nations with his rod of iron, judging with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, 
and finally bringing the kingdom that will never be destroyed at the end of this succession of kingdoms. But first there has to be these seven kingdoms who all establish themselves in the Middle East, ruling over Israel. Then Christ is going to come back, David's greater son, set up his throne in Jerusalem, and from there he's going to rule the whole world. That's what the Bible says. I can't change what the Bible says. So then no surprise that this red dragon, who is Satan himself, is the driving force behind the seven kingdoms. In a moment, we're going to read that this red dragon tries to kill the son that the woman is bearing. He has always been anti-Christian. He has always been anti-Israel because it is through Israel that the Christ comes. Another sign appeared in the heavens, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head there were seven diadems, seven crowns. So we know that these are seven kingdoms. Does that all make sense? Yes. It's just not even complicated if you know your Bible. And the tail of that red dragon swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's the place where we get the notion, the understanding, that Satan, when he fell, took a third of heaven down with him. That's why there are such things as fallen angels. Very interestingly, Paul, in referring to the angels in heaven, refers to them as the elect angels. Why would Paul use eclectos, election, the same language that is used for us? How is it that we became the saints of God? Well, God elected us. How is it that Paul can use that same language to talk about angels in heaven? Because those are the angels that did not fall, and the reason they did not fall was because God himself protected them from falling and let the rest of them go, which is why there are on the planet, they're just as active today as they've ever been, the demons, the fallen angels, diamond. The Bible describes these fallen angels and their activity here on planet Earth. But specifically, these seven kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel are driven by Satan himself. I'll show you that in a moment. There is a very demonic warfare going on out there in heaven that we just don't know anything about. And God is preserving us and protecting us from that because we are, after all, his church, his body, his bride. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Of course Satan would want to destroy Jesus. Of course, the Son of God coming to the planet. By the way, remember like when Jesus dealt with the demoniac by the Gadarenes. Do you remember that demoniac who was named Legion because he was so many? There were so many demons in that guy. Do you remember when Jesus walked up on him, what they did? They bowed to him. They They worshiped before him and said, Son of man, what are you to do with us? They know who he is. Satan knows who he is, of course. Satan would want to destroy him. And that's why we read about the slaughter of the innocents. 
as soon as Jesus was born, what does Herod start doing? And he starts killing children because he's trying through demonic influence, because after all, Satan is in charge of all these seven kingdoms. Through his demonic influence, he's trying to destroy the child that was born to Israel. He stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? Answer is not Israel. Jesus. Jesus, that has to be Jesus. He's the one who rules all nations with a rod of iron. By the way, if you would, Micah, quickly look up Psalm 2, and you're going to read verse 9, because that's going to help us again, knowing our Old Testament, that's going to help us to interpret the symbols, the signs that John has seen here in the book of Revelation. Okay, I'm talking to kill time so that you can get there. Are you there? Psalm 2, verse 9, which says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like prison Okay, now we need to know who that is. So back up a little bit. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Who is God speaking to? Jesus. Jesus, his son. And then he says about him, go ahead. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. Does any of that sound familiar? That's what we just talked about out of Daniel and out of Revelation. Keep going. And the very ends of the earth as your possession... I'll give you the very ends of the earth as your possession, and you will break them with a rod of iron. Okay, that identifies clearly Christ. So John, speaking in this sort of symbolic shorthand, can say that she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That is a direct reference to Psalm 2, the Davidic prediction where God said, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance and you will break them with a rod of iron. Exact same language is picked up in the book of Revelation to identify the male child. He's the one who is going to break all nations with a rod of iron. And then just to seal the deal, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That, by the way, is a word that you should all be very familiar with by now. It is the word harpazo, that he was snatched up off the earth and lifted up to heaven. By the way, did that happen? Yes. Yeah, the ascension. I mean, even the apostles got to see him rise up off the earth. He was enveloped in clouds. An angel is standing with them and says, you men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the heavens? Which I think is kind of a duh moment. Did you see him? He just rose up off the planet. What do you mean, what are we looking at? And then the angel says, this same Jesus will return in like manner as you just saw him leave. He's coming back in clouds of glory. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. He's coming back to break the Gentile nations with his rod of iron. Here he is identified symbolically in the book of Revelation by those exact characteristics. So there is no question about who John is referring to here. So far, has there been any question about any of these symbols that we've seen in Revelation 12? No, sir. No question. See, it's not that hard. You just got to know your Bible. 
She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was Harpazo, caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman, that's Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for her by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And how exactly do they know where to run to? That's in the book of Daniel. All they have to do is know the book of Daniel, and they know exactly where to run to into the wilderness, just like Jesus told them, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple where it should not be, then run into the wilderness. Verse 7. I told you earlier that I was going to give you a bit of a demonstration of the warfare that goes on in heaven so that we can understand how spiritual these symbols are and that the devil himself controls, rules these demonic kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel. Starting at verse 7, we're going to get into that. And it says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they, the dragon and his angels, were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Now we know exactly who that dragon is. We don't have to interpret the dragon. That word devil, by the way, is the Greek diabolos. Diabolos does, even though it's translated as devil, that's not actually the direct translation of the word. Literally, it means to cast through or to throw apart. The best picture word I can give you is that diabolos was sometimes used for a wood splitter when you would take a, a piece of metal and drive it into wood and then hit that metal so that the wood was split. That was diabolos. It threw apart the two sides of the wood. And so even though he is called devil in our interpretations, it also tells you something about him. He's the one who wants to divide the people of God. And then he is also referred to as Satan. That comes from an ancient Chaldee word, Satanus. But in the Hebrew, it's Satan. And you know what Satan means? The accuser. And what is his job? Accuse. In a moment, he's going to be described as accusing the brethren day and night. Satan is in heaven, still has access enough to God to go and accuse you day and night. Here's the really bad news if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not. But every time Satan goes and accuses me before God, he's usually right. Yeah, he's, he's, anytime he wants to say, did you see him? Did you see what he did or what he didn't do or what he thought or what he just said? Have you seen? He's usually right. That's his job. He's the accuser, day and night, accusing the brethren. It's a good thing to know that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. Because every time our accusing attorney stands up and says, guilty, our lawyer, our advocate gets to stand up and say, innocent based on what I already did. 
I already accomplished his salvation, therefore you can't hold him guilty. Which is why even Paul would say, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies, it is Jesus that died, yea, that is risen again. So the name Satan means accuser because that's what he does. He's constantly accusing the brethren. And he's going to continue to accuse the brethren right up until he is finally thrown out of heaven. And that's what's being described here in chapter 12. The great serpent was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called Diabolos and Satan. Who deceives the whole world. Put a pin in that. Because when we get to Revelation 20, we're going to be told that he is cast into the abyss for a thousand years. For what reason? That he can't deceive the nations. So part of his description is that he is actively deceiving the nations right now. He's deceiving the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying... Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. By the way, testimony is an odd (coughs) translation that's the Greek word, martyrus. It's the word for martyr. It's more than just giving testimony. It's more than just saying, you'll know we're Christians by our T-shirts. It's more than just saying, you know, I got a testimony. It means laying down your life for what you believe, their willingness to be martyred for Jesus Christ. So they overcame Satan because of the death of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, and because the word of their martyrdom And they did not love their life even to the death. That just proves that it's about martyrdom. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in the heavens. And woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. That's where we're going to pick up next week but let's finish this morning with what I promised you we're going to read a little bit about this warfare in the heavens I find this an absolutely fascinating bit of the book of Daniel and this will help you understand what John has said about how the devil is in control of these seven nations who ever exercise authority over Israel let me catch up with you real quick Daniel chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Okay, so who was ruling in the Middle East at that time? Cyrus Cyrus and Persia. What's the significance of Cyrus and Persia? Well, Isaiah named him 150 years in advance. It's included in his prophecies because he is the king who God is going to use to let the Israelites, let the Jews return back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. So Cyrus plays a very large part here in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has been defeated by the Medo-Persians. And during the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel 
And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. Hold on to that. Three weeks, during which, verse 3, I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment, any oils at all, until the entire three weeks were completed. So how many days is that? 21 days he's been praying. Verse 4, and on the 24th day of the first month, when I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and I looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, and his face had the appearance of lightning, and his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. Does that sound familiar, by the way? It's the same language that John uses to describe Christ at the beginning of the book of Revelation, but you can see why Daniel would see something like that and feel like falling down immediately. Now I, verse 7, now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell over them, and they ran away and they hid themselves. By the way, does that mean that God can reveal himself to particular people even if they're in a group? Okay, just hang on to that. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep trance, a deep sleep on my face, and my face was to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling up on my hands and knees. That is the exact opposite, by the way, of the whole Pentecostal fall backwards experience. They say when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, you fall down. No, you fall down anyway for lack of strength when confronted with the majesty of an almighty God. It is God who picks you up. I'll be impressed when one of these Pentecostal guys actually picks somebody up off the ground by the Holy Spirit. That would be much more biblical than what they're doing. i got to quit these asides. i got to get you out of here. And he said to me, O Daniel, and he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. I heard you. God heard you 21 days ago. So why did it take that long to get to Daniel? I mean, after all, they heard it 21 days ago, and they intend to answer him. They're going to give him a very significant prophecy. So this angel is carrying really important news. Why did it take him 21 days? Look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. What? Does that mean Cyrus withstood him? I mean, was Cyrus out there dueling with him? 
No, the demonic entity, the devil that drove Cyrus in ruling over Israel. Remember, these seven kingdoms are all demonically inspired. That's what the book of Revelation tells us. It is the great dragon who has these seven heads. And so the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of your chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. By the way, why plural kings? Because both Darius and Cyrus were ruling at the time. Remember, it's the Medo-Persian Empire. It's two different nations that had joined together into one. Cyrus eventually became more powerful. And he's the one who puts forward the decree for the Jews to be able to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. But there are kings, plural, ruling in Medo-Persia. And here this angel says, I was left there by myself to fight with them. And Michael, one of your chief princes, came to help me. Verse 14, now I have come to you. I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people. Who's that? Israel. Israel. The answer is always Israel. I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And then I opened my mouth and I spoke. And I said to him who was standing before me, O Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. And then this being appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, oh, man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. And now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. And he said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, do you not understand why I came to you? But I came now, and I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. So apparently the only way he got to Daniel to give him this prophecy about his own people Israel, Michael was holding the prince of Persia in a holding pattern so that he could leave the fight in order to come and speak to Daniel. But look at what he says. Now I'm going to return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Grisha is about to come. Why was Alexander the Great able to conquer the Medo-Persian slash Babylonian Empire? Why was he able to overtake them so quickly and so suddenly? Because the demonic force that drove the Medo-Persian Empire had been defeated in the heavenlies. But behold, the prince of Grisha is about to come. There's all these demonic forces in the heavens. There's all this demonic activity that we just don't know anything about. In the book of Revelation, we're told that there was war in the heavens. But there's always been this kind of war in the heavens as God and his angels continue to fight against the demonic realm, which is why Jesus would refer to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. 
you don't know about it. You sit down and eat your Wheaties in the morning and you're not even thinking, gee, I wonder if there's a demon trying to attack me right now. Yeah, there is. And the reason you don't know it is because you're being protected from on high. There are angels that are fighting for you, and I agree, praise the Lord. There are angels that are fighting for you right now, but what I want you to come away with where Revelation is concerned is the understanding that in Revelation 12, there is a war in the heavenlies and the succession of kingdoms from Egypt to Assyria, to Babylon, to Medo-Persia, to Greece, to Rome, and ultimately to the ten-toed kingdom Each of those kingdoms that make up the seven heads on the dragon Satan himself who rules over each of them, each of those are demonic kingdoms and that's why they are against Israel and against those who belong to Christ and why he tried to defeat Christ from the very beginning and he's still in that enterprise. Fortunately, what we're told is someday he's going to be cast out of heaven entirely and then the people in heaven break into worship and declare It's time. Now the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ, exactly like we read in Psalm 2. It was predicted all the way back there by David. Therefore, it had to happen. The book of Revelation is saying, yeah, and it's going to happen. And none of that is difficult to interpret. Again, if you just let the Bible interpret it, it is genuinely all Israel-centric because the ultimate kingdom that Christ is going to set up is sitting on David's throne from Jerusalem, ruling all the nations with a rod of iron, the same way that we read all the way through the Old Testament, all the kings that God has established to rule over his people, Israel, culminating in David's greater son returning and ruling. The Bible makes tremendous sense, both historically and spiritually, if you just let it say what it says. I think men through the last 2,000 years have done a great deal of damage with their extra ideas and eschatologies and theological ideas, but just let the Bible say what it says. That's all I'm asking people to do, and if you do that, you come away with one thing and one thing only, which is Christ is coming back and he's going to rule on this earth, and eventually holiness is going to break out, even to the bridles of the horses, even to the cups and bowls we drink out of. He's going to come back according to Zechariah. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. It's going to split and Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeping over her only son. There is a restoration of Israel coming. The whole Bible says it. I'm just so very glad that in the midst of God doing all that, in his control of history and in his control of eschatology, I'm just so glad that he let me in on it. And you, not because you deserve it, but because of grace. And Israel doesn't deserve it, but it's grace. And it's an absolutely sovereign God doing what only an absolutely sovereign God can do. And you either believe that because the Bible says it, Or you don't believe the Bible. You got it? Got it. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.